Um, we are looking at Peter at the house of Cornelius. That is a meeting that has been heavily arranged by the Lord, both the angel communicating with Cornelius and the sheet vision that Peter received, as well, well as the Spirit specifically telling Peter uh, to go with the men that were looking for him. And Cornelius has gotten an audience of people ready to listen to the message when Peter arrives. And, uh, of course, the real uh, you know, noteworthy thing in the context of Acts about this whole story is that Cornelius is a Gentile. And the people there are Gentiles. And this is kind of unheard of for a <coughs> Gentile Gentile to receive the gospel. Proselytes have. There were proselytes back there in Acts 2. But proselytes were still counted as Jews, even though they were ethnically Gentiles. But for a, for a real Gentile to be saved, that is a new step in the program. But it fits with the even basic uh, thesis of Acts, where the gospel would be spread in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria, and then to the remote parts of the earth. Alright, any comments or questions before we start in 34? This is Peter's speech, so 34 to 43. In opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him up on the third day and granted that he should become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he had arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So Peter has come to a, an insight, uh, a, a deduction that he had not realized before. What was that? God shows no partiality. So who does God accept? Everyone. Who? Who comes to him. Yes. God is going to judge by character, not by race doesn't respect the persons. He accepts those in any nation who fear him and do what's right. What has caused Peter to come to that conclusion? Well, his vision and the events that have taken place. Absolutely. He is seeing the point of that sheet vision with what God has cleansed, let no man consider common or unclean. And all the other events corroborate that as well. He's properly grasped the point that the Lord's trying to make to him. And so, he preaches about the Lord. He preaches the message that uh, of peace through Jesus. 
and he tells about Jesus' work. What does he tell about uh, Jesus? God anointed him. Yes, and what did he do? With that, with the Holy Spirit and the power, then he was able to do healing and uh, asking out demons. And, and how can Cornelius know that? He said, you know about it. <laughs> yes. Well, he'd been giving the alms to the Jewish people, so he must have been around them. Maybe, although I don't know if Cornelius had actually, you know, been there when Jesus was doing these things. What 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 does Peter appeal to, to confirm that Jesus really did those things? He said, "We are witnesses." Yes. Mm -hmm. Peter and the other apostles, perhaps even the other men that were with him, are witnesses they saw him do it. He does not bring Jesus back down for a repeat performance for Cornelius and his household's benefit. He is a witness, and Cornelius is to accept this on the basis of the testimony of the witnesses. Not only that, but what else does he tell him about Jesus? And God raised him. Now, as far as I know, Cornelius certainly did not see Jesus after he was raised. How can Cornelius know that really happened? Witnesses again. Witnesses, yeah. <clears throat> Peter and the other uh, apostles and, and uh, some of the disciples were witnesses of Jesus' miracles, and they're also witnesses of... Uh, the resurrection. And so you've got this testimony that that Cornelius can receive. Really, Cornelius is in a lot the same position we are. We didn't see Jesus work the miracles. We did not see him after he was raised, but we accept the eyewitness testimony. And so that's what he appeals to. And he says, Jesus ordered us to preach to the people and to testify that he's the God... Uh, he's been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. So we need to respond to Jesus. He's the Lord, he's the ruler, he's the judge, and the prophets say that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So he's basically preached a sermon about Jesus. Now, I don't know if this is a designed thing, I have a hard time figuring out what's contrived and what's what's designed. But I do think in this case it kind of helps us see the pattern of the sermon. If we will notice uh, a chiasm, or uh, there's some other terms we could use, but let's leave it at that. Look at the beginning and the end. Look at 34 and 35, verses 43. What's the similarity about 34 and 35 and 43? that everybody who obeys him Yes. You've got the everyone who fears him and does what is right in verse 35 and the everyone who believes in him in verse 43. Or, and, and in verse 35, they're welcome to him. In verse 43, they receive forgiveness. So basically you have the conditions for being right with God presented at the beginning and the end of the speech. Then look at 36 and look at 42. That's maybe not 
totally parallel, but what do you see as a, a, a clear parallel between 36 and 42? Alright, but you have the preaching as a parallel. There's another parallel. Jesus is Lord and Jesus is judge. He's Lord of all and he's judge of the living and the dead. That would be all. So he's the Lord of all, he's the judge of all. Then, if you look at um, 37 to 39 and you look at 41... You have witnesses of what Jesus did while he was on the earth and witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. And in the middle, you have God raised him up. So, starting from the ends, God accepts or forgives everyone who fears and does right or who believes in him. Then coming in a step, he's Lord of all, he's judge of all. Coming in another step, they witnessed what Jesus did on the earth, they witnessed the resurrection, and in the middle, God raised him up. That seems at least uh, clear enough to kind of help us see those points in the sermon, even if that wasn't the intention of the author. I'm not sure about that, but I do think it helps us kind of see the sermon as a whole to look at it that way. Alright, comments and questions through verse 43. Does the chiasm help us understand? I think it helps us organize the material. Now, often the middle of the chiasm is kind of the emphasized point, so sometimes it may help in our understanding that way. Sometimes there's like a logical progression. Like sometimes you've got a chiasm where they go down spiritually and then they come back up and so you see kind of the reflection but here you don't have that here it just to me helps you kind of organize the sermon it's almost a literary thing it's kind of like uh, you know some of like the puns in the original language and things like that they draw attention that makes you remember and makes you see it not sure they actually just teach you something specifically Other comments and questions? So Peter's outline for his sermon would have been A, B, C, D, C, B, A. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm not so sure in this one, if he really intended it that way or if that's just kind of how it turned out. You know, this one to me helps me just look at the sermon and see it more clearly. I don't see so much point to be made from it to be sure that it's designed by Peter. It may have been. I mean, that's a kind of a poetic device, and so it may have been. Uh, but I do, for me, it just helps me really look and see what's there. And, and that is kind of how it's structured. The problem is always trying to determine significance and intention. And some commentaries find chiasms absolutely in everything. And that's certainly not the case, but this one seemed a little more obvious to me. Gary, what's the definition of a chiasm again? Well, it comes from the Greek letter key. Okay. And so in a you 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 link up the opposite corners. Okay. So like A B B A okay. or A B C C B A, etc. Okay. So yeah, that's the idea. The key is the 
the X, basically, in, in Greek. Okay. So that's his sermon. Oh, that, that's at least the part of the sermon he got out before some other things happened. I don't know if he would have said other things or not. Uh, he was still speaking when we have this event in 44 to 48. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Uh, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Okay. So Peter didn't get to finish the sermon. It looks like. He's still speaking. <coughs> and suddenly the Holy Spirit falls upon the listeners. Wow. That's amazing. What amazed them about this? It was a pretty direct way to indicate that God was accepting Gentiles. That's it. You know, this had happened back in Acts chapter 2, that the Holy Spirit fell upon uh, those people there in the upper room, but they were Jews. The astonishing thing about this is that the Holy Spirit is falling on Gentiles also. And they are going to take this and see this not as an isolated incident, but as a demonstration of God's decision that's going to affect the whole pagan world. That God is showing by sending the Spirit on Gentiles that he's willing to receive Gentiles who are willing to turn to him as well. It's really the same point of the sheep vision. But demonstrated in a very graphic way as they begin to speak in tongues and exalt God and show evidence that they have been baptized in the Spirit. And that's it's sort of a, you know, who now can object to Gentile salvation? God has done this. Peter didn't have a thing in the world to do with the Holy Spirit falling upon him. It wasn't his decision. He was just preaching a sermon when God sent the Holy Spirit down on them. But Peter gets the point. He says, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized. I assume Peter didn't do the baptizing. Often the preacher didn't. He orders them baptized, so perhaps some of the six men who were with him did it. Uh, but they were baptized, and uh, he stayed there for a few days. So, you know, this shows Gentiles are accepted by God. Comments and questions? I think it's interesting, because the Lord sent Peter there. These six Jews go with him. I, I get the picture of they're, they're going to sort of protect Peter. And uh, Peter's not the only one that's teaching on that occasion. He's, he's also, and the Jews there are learning things that are just as important as what they've been teaching. Yeah, good point. Yeah, Peter is taught more than he's teaching. Good point. God has interesting meth- teaching methods, doesn't he? He sure does. <clears throat> uh, 
I was going to ask how how did the Jews know that the Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles, but is verse 46 my answer to that? I think it is. Okay. God's really, he's really done a lot of things in this chapter. And sending the angel to Cornelius, the sheep vision, the spirit talking to, to Peter, and now the Holy Spirit falling on the Gentiles, and they're speaking in tongues. Wow. I mean, it took a lot <laughs> to get these early Christians to see the point. Well, the importance of baptism, though, is still made very clear. All these, all these uh, appearances, the uh, Holy Spirit upon them, but they still need to be baptized. Good point. They couldn't have been baptized, or Peter <laughs> wouldn't have allowed them to be if these things hadn't happened. He wouldn't have thought Gentiles should be saved, but he doesn't take these things as evidence that they wouldn't need it. He immediately orders them baptized. Let me ask the question I'm going to bring up. I know a lot of people that, that use this verse these verses at least, especially the, those that don't believe in baptism for salvation, that they believe baptism is needed to say that you are a Christian, but that is not needed for salvation. They use these verses to say that um, how can someone that's not saved and not in a relationship with the Lord have the Holy Spirit? So what, do you, what would you say to that? Well, I would say that God is uh, a versatile God. And if he could speak by Balaam's donkey and give him, in some sense, the spirit, he can give the spirit to anybody. Um, I understand that more, as far as the spirit residing in the heart of someone, it's in the heart of uh, someone who's converted to him. But I think this is an exception in the sense that the Holy Spirit came on uh, someone who's not a Christian. I mean, what about Balaam himself is another example of that. And even, I mean, there are times that God, in some manner, used people like Caiaphas, who prophesied unconsciously that Jesus would die for the nation, and things like that. So, I mean, I, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't say the Holy Spirit just dwells in the life of somebody who doesn't manifest the fruit of the Spirit. But for the Holy Spirit to come on someone for a particular purpose who may not even be a faithful servant of God, I think we do have some at least limited illustrations of that. So his purpose was not... So his purpose for this, giving the Holy Spirit, was not the same purpose as Acts 2. I think it was not the same purpose as Acts 2. So this was giving to show the to show the first Holy Spirit in Acts 2 was given to show those that were listening the things that were saying was true. This is more to give those who are teaching to know that what that to accept the Gentiles. That makes it all. Yeah, it does, and I agree. And also in Acts 2, at least as far as the apostles are concerned, the Holy Spirit is empowering them to be his witnesses qualifying them to be his representatives, etc. I don't see that any of that is true with Cornelius and his family. This is just showing God's uh, endorsement of Gentile salvation. So it wasn't even necessary for them, but more for those that were teaching. It has a consequence to them, because otherwise I don't think Peter would have ever baptized them. 
But yeah, you're right. This is this is demonstrating God's approval of the Gentiles. And by doing the same thing, in a sense, that he did on the day of Pentecost. It's like he is showing his approval of the Gentiles in as high a possible a way as he could. He'll make that point a little bit in chapter 11 as well. You know, they received the same gift as, as the apostles did on the day of Pentecost. I mean, if they, if they receive the same gift, if they speak in tongues in the same way, how can you say they can't be saved? Other thoughts? I think it's obvious you would have to conclude that the Holy Spirit wasn't sent for the purpose of saving the Gentiles there. Yeah, not directly. <laughs> yeah. That God's purpose in that was to teach Peter and these Jews and all of them that God accepted the Gentiles too. They could become Christians too. Exactly. That it was okay to save Gentiles, but not that this saved Gentiles. I, I agree. That doesn't make them Christians. Exactly. If it did, why bother with 47 and 48? Yeah. And, you know, he'll make a point later on, for example, in chapter 15, and uh, verse 9, talking about Cornelius, Peter talking, he's going to say, verse 8, God who knows the heart testified to them, giving them uh, the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. You know, their hearts were not cleansed by the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile salvation. They're all saved in the same way. You know, clearly the Holy Spirit did not come in this way on everybody. This is a rare event. But their hearts are cleansed in the same way by an obedient faith. Other thoughts, questions, comments? <laughs> the Spirit came on Saul when he was in the middle of trying to kill David, didn't it? He started prophesying, so he might not You're say right. anything about yeah, that's a good. That's another good illustration. The condition yeah. of the person. Yeah, back in, uh, what was that, First uh, Samuel 19? Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean... We shouldn't try to, uh, I don't know, sort of limit the means and methods God can use in, in using the Holy Spirit for specific purposes. Um, and, and I think, you know, we've got several illustrations now of God sending His Spirit to do something in somebody that wasn't saved. some reason when I was thinking about this I hadn't really thought about the fact that this was for Peter um, the Holy Spirit coming down it was for more for the teachers than the, than the listeners but for some reason when I think about this I, I can't help but think of Gideon as, as Peter's almost like Gideon kind of like showing me a sign well, he's given Gideon like three or four signs and Gideon's still hidden on the boat yet and here he's giving Peter God Peter says I, I, can't, I can't deny it anymore you know I have to wonder if what he says you know, who can deny he's talking about himself I can't, I can't do it. I can't deny it anymore. And you might consider this. It's not just for Peter. Next chapter, he's going to get called on the carpet by the Jewish leaders. I mean, this is for everybody to understand. 
And it is taking a whole lot to convince brethren of this. This is a good example of a necessary inference, isn't it? Or a necessary conclusion. It certainly is. I mean, you can't avoid this conclusion if you're being honest. Right. We are intended to see the design of what God does. We're intended to to actually reason from what he does to the points that he's trying to make and the conclusions that we need to draw. Other thoughts? Well, this next section is Peter going back to Jerusalem and uh, people have heard about this. This is a bit of a shock. Peter and uh, some other men went into Gentiles and actually ate with them. And some other things. And they, uh, they don't seem to have undue respect for Peter's position. They, are, uh, they call him on the carpet. So chapter 11, verses 1 to 18. 